You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So, um, as we, we dive in this morning to kind of give you a little background as, as to why would we possibly um, talk about something as difficult as sin, sanctification, and holiness on our one week off, um, it was that or giving, so be glad. Um, but also what it came down to is I had, I had the tyranny of freedom, and I've been overwhelmed this year in my study of scriptures of the consistent theme of the Spirit-inspired authors of the New Testament calling the people of God to a personal holiness far above that which I've lived up to. This call to obedience cannot be avoided as we read the scriptures. And this morning, my hope is that myself, who, who has consistently been plagued by the desires and the temptations of the flesh, as long as us as a, as well as us as a people would experience and believe the goodness of God in his call to obedience, um, and that we would walk in grace and freedom rather than in an overwhelmed spirit of anxiousness or guilt. So Hebrews 12, verse 15 through 17 says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. First, I'm going to briefly explain this reference in Hebrews to Esau. So for those of you who are maybe less familiar um, with the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis... There is the story of the patriarch Isaac, who had two twin sons, Jacob and Esau, Esau being the older. And so with this, Esau had the birthright, meaning he was the impending patriarch, and all of the blessings therein were to be his upon Isaac's death. And in a moment um, of extreme exhaustion and hunger after a day of labor, Esau sold his birthright to his younger brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. And so with that reference in mind, the author of Hebrews uses the story of Esau to talk about our call to holiness and discipline in the faith. And then there's another thing that really sticks out in this text, and that's the last verse. And on face value, the final sentence in this passage can cloud our minds so much that the rest of it is either so terrifying, we don't want to engage with it, or we just ignore it altogether. Because verse 17 says that Esau was rejected and found no chance to repent after the reader is warned and called to be pure and holy. So naturally, at least for me, um, this can lead to a feeling of, of being crippled and unforgivable 
for those of us in the room who have ever walked in disobedience or sexual impurity. There's a hopelessness in this text upon first glance. So let's initially address that portion of the text so that we can go in to see the deep love and grace that God has for us in obedience. When I first read this text and I saw that Esau, even though he desired the blessing, found no chance to repent, it it raised this question in my mind, which terrified me. After all that I've heard of this gospel of grace, is it possible that for me, a believer, can lose my salvation as a result of my sin? Is it possible that someone who believes in the saving work of Christ can lose their salvation as a result of sin? That they can go so far that at some point God refuses to accept their repentance? Simply put, the answer is no. The text cannot be saying that. All of the scriptures are so clear from beginning to end that God has a limitless and boundless grace toward his people. We see that all throughout the Old Testament as God's people, the nation of Israel, continually leave God to worship other gods and to pursue their desires, and God responds by pursuing them, calling them back into covenant love and relationship and restoring them. We see that as our Lord and Savior Jesus taught about God's grace for his people through the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son, in which the prodigal son takes the inheritance from his father goes and spends it on prostitutes and booze, and when he returns home, his father runs into the field and greets him with love and a kiss. We see this in Romans chapter 7 and 8 as the Apostle Paul himself confesses this ongoing and deep battle with sin in the flesh, followed by the powerful truth in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the context of this passage in Hebrews 12 is within the framework of discussing endurance in the faith, discipline in the faith, and holiness in the faith, and remaining faithful until the end. But it is certainly not a text that is of the matter of losing our salvation. Rather, it is all about partaking in our salvation and the joy that accompanies obedience. So for those of you who are in the room who are type A note takers, we're going to have three key points this morning. The first point is that we are saved into holiness for holiness. The second point is that the stakes of holiness are high. And so after talking about being saved into holiness for holiness and the high stakes of holiness, we'll finish by answering the question, how do we walk in holiness? And since all of these points are clearly concerned with the idea of holiness. Let's define that term before we really dive in any further. Holiness is to be like God and to be unlike the world. It's the opposite of being flawed and sinful. Holiness is a separateness or an otherness in comparison with that which we experience in this fallen world. So we're saved into holiness and for holiness. The good news of the gospel is this. This is the good news of what we believe as Christians. That in love, God has saved an unholy people based upon the merit of Jesus' holiness that they would become a holy people. 
So God, in his love, has saved an unholy people by the merit of his son Jesus' holiness so that they would become a holy people. And so this means that for those who have placed their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they are defined holy based solely on the works of Jesus. They've gone from death to life. And this is an immediate transaction of holiness. Upon experiencing this saving faith, a person has a completely new identity. Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by grace through faith, apart from any of our own works. Our holiness is completely based upon the merit of Jesus, not upon our works or our merit. In other words, we are not, but, but the identity of holiness that we, that we receive upon salvation, this immediate identity of holiness that we receive is always followed in Scripture by a direct call to a change in behavior. We're not called only to be a holy people based upon our profession of faith, but also in our faith working itself out in good deeds. We were saved for holiness. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 4 verses 20 through 24 says this, But... That is not the way you learned in Christ, speaking of sin. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Romans six fifteen through 18 What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Or as it is put simply in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. We are not only saved into the holiness of Christ, which is the basis for our right standing before God and our future heavenly inheritance, but we are also saved for a lifestyle marked by our new holy identity. God's intention was not to save a sinful people that they would continue to be a sinful people. He desired to have for himself a people marked by his very character, making his glory known to the world around them. Holiness is the means to both the future inheritance of the faith in heaven and to the present blessings therein. By the merit of Jesus' holiness and his sacrificial death and resurrection in our stead, we are considered completely holy and righteous before God. And on this basis alone are we called sons and daughters and heirs to the kingdom. Simply put, 
We go to heaven and experience communion with God for eternity based completely upon what Jesus has done, not based on what we will do. But that's our future inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says of our future inheritance, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for, our, for a salvation ready to be revealed to you in the last time. Or Romans 8.18 that says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or we could look to Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, which essentially says that we have obtained an inheritance that we have not yet taken possession of. So this future inheritance that is bought for us completely by Jesus' merit, what is it? Simply put, the inheritance that we will receive based on Jesus' holiness is eternal relationship and communion with God. This is the ultimate joy. Hebrews refers to this as entering the rest of God. In Genesis, when God was finished creating the world, he rested. And in the garden, he placed Adam and Eve there to enter into his rest. But the hunger of their bellies and the temptation of their minds led them to forsake the rest of God for the toil of human life and eventual death. But in the reconciliation of Christ, that is, in salvation, by grace, through faith, we get to join God in his rest finally and fully upon the end of this momentary life. That's really good news, church. But there's not only a future inheritance. We can partake in a shadow of that inheritance through the blessing of obedience and personal holiness today. We were saved by a holy God to be a holy people, that we could know him wholly in his loving rest. And this is the best possible experience for a human created in God's image. So in this life, as we forsake sin and submit ourselves to God, we experience the blessing of knowing and communing with him through his spirit that indwells us. And this won't always be easy. We know that very well. Sometimes it will be painful, but growing in the discipline of holiness will increase the blessings that we experience in this life. As we are disciplined in obedience, we will also experience the adoptive love of God the Father, who has patiently and gracefully teach, taught us. And Jesus said that we would experience life in abundance when he was on earth. He said that that's why he came, that we would experience life in abundance. But he also said in John, if you love me, obey my commandments. These ideas are not contradictory. It would stand to reason, based on those two things, that the most abundant or blessed life is that which is marked by holiness, discipline, and obedience. Holiness is not the restrictive rule of God but it's rather a loving invitation of God for his people. 
So we're saved into holiness for a life of holiness. And the stakes of that holiness are high. To be saved into holiness and for holiness really means that all of the Christian life is concerned with holiness. And it shouldn't be surprising for you to hear me say that the stakes of this holiness are high. Let's look at Romans 8 verse 13. Speaking to the believing community in the church of Rome, Paul says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This passage is clear. Even those who profess belief with their mouth and know of God and his promises will experience death and separation from him if they continually walk in accordance with their sinful bodily desires. But let us not be confused to believe that what Paul is saying is that a believer can lose his or her salvation. Backing up in the text, Paul says that the Spirit of God indwells all believers and that they are not in the flesh. So this juxtaposition between sinful flesh and the believer made holy by life in the Spirit is both a warning and a hopeful encouragement. In chapter 7, we saw that Paul confessed that he seemed to continually fall back into the serving of his flesh with sinful desires and actions and thoughts. But then he followed that by telling the readers that he is not bound by or defined by those things because of what Christ has done in saving him and in giving him his spirit. So if our salvation is not at stake as a result of this unholy behavior, what are the high stakes of holiness? What is at stake? There are two things that I'm going to address this morning that are at stake when it comes to our holiness. The first is the ministry of the gospel. And the second is our personal joy. In our personal holiness, or lack thereof, the stakes at play are the ministry of the gospel and our personal joy. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our personal holiness is the outward expression of God's saving work in our life. And it leads people to seeing the perfectly holy, graceful, loving God of the universe in a way that they might have an opportunity to know him in salvation through faith. On the other hand, when we as the church proclaim Christ and his lordship with our mouths and live according to the sinful desires of our flesh, we make our God to look small, unpowerful, unholy, and altogether uninteresting. He looks no different than the world around him when we represent him by sin. And if we want our neighbors and mantras to experience the saving work of God through Jesus and his holiness, we must also be a holy people. So our salvation is not at stake when we sin. But when we are obedient, God is able to use our holiness 
to bring about salvation in others. And as mentioned earlier, not only is the ministry of gospel at stake with our holiness, but the present blessings of the Christian life are a result of obedience and our personal joy is at stake. The enjoyment of God and relationship with Him is only fully experienced as we participate in our roles as a holy people, redeemed as image bearers. This is not to say that obedience to God will produce in us health, wealth, or status. That is not the good news or the promise of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not that we get those things, but rather that we get to know God. That's the good news, is that we get to know the God of the universe in all of his splendor. And so if a life is to be lived for joy, I would argue that joy is only found in knowing God. And we know God more fully in our obedience. His commandments are therefore for our good, and our loving response to his goodness is to obey them. When we submit ourselves to our old sinful thoughts and habits, we forsake the joy of knowing Christ more deeply. Yet in our resisting of temptation, we participate in our new identity and our new selves, which is the identity of Christ. Because Christ endured temptation to the point of shedding blood. And we likewise should endure temptation to extreme measures that we might know more and more the happiness, joy, and life that is to be had in God through Christ. So how do we walk in holiness? We can all sit here and at least theologically assent to this idea that we're called to holiness and that Christ is our holiness in our stead. And, and we can even probably agree that, that in our holiness, that makes the ministry of the gospel more effective, and it produces joy in us. We've read that. We've heard that. But if you're anything like me, you can hear those things and know those things and still throw your hands up and say, yeah, but I can't do it. I've tried. I've tried all of these things to produce in myself obedience. I've had accountability partners. I've journaled. I've, re I've read these books. Right? I've, I've gripped my teeth. You know, I've, I've gotten rid of certain things of, of technology and I've kept certain things out of my house and all of these things and yet still my flesh longs for sin. The Bible can tell us to be obedient. And it can even tell us the vast and numerous benefits of doing so. In practice, however, we know that obedience is really, really hard we're still bent toward the things of the flesh. We're bent toward money, power, sexual pleasure, the approval of men, worldly comforts, laziness, drunkenness, the list goes on and on and on. And it's no surprise that we have this bent towards sin. We were born into the world with sinful natures that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And experiencing the salvation that comes through Jesus doesn't completely change all of our tendencies on the spot. Don't confuse the immediate transaction of holiness for unholiness on the moment of experiencing saving faith for the immediate transaction 
of sinful tendencies for holy tendencies. Those are two very separate things. And the Bible is clear that the process of becoming perfectly like Christ is just that, a process in which time, effort, and the miracles of God are all necessary ingredients. So in this life on earth, we will always be plagued to some extent by the sin that dwells in our flesh. This sin, however, is not who you are anymore if you're in Christ. Nor is it your chief desire. Hear that, church. The sin that your body so longs for is not your chief desire if the Spirit dwells within you. In Romans 7, Paul makes that very clear as he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Who resounds with that? For if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. How many times have I given in to the temptation of the flesh and immediately been struck with guilt and shame and remorse? Ultimately, that's because I did not fundamentally desire to commit that sin or forsake my holiness. Rather, my desires are different now because of the Spirit of God who lives within me. As an adopted son of God, I desire holiness, but my body and mind still long for sin. And this doesn't mean that you or I are always going to give in to the same sins and temptation that have always plagued us. You may feel completely trapped in your patterns of sin or your patterns of thought. But you're not a slave to your sin. If you're in Christ, you have been fundamentally freed and forgiven based on His righteousness and merit and your faith in it. You've also been given the Spirit of God to dwell within you who will serve as a helper to you. Remember in Romans when Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Church, this is an incredibly freeing verse. God has given himself to us fully in Jesus who suffered in our stead and to give us his holiness for eternity. But God didn't stop there. He has also given himself to us fully in this present life by indwelling us with his very person in the Spirit of God that we can experience and taste the future glory of holiness even today. Notice that Paul did not tell us to grit our teeth and put to death the deeds of the body. Or try really hard and put to death the deeds of the body. Or just quit doing that and put to death the deeds of the body. He tells us to do this by the Spirit meaning by the very power and person of our God in heaven. So clearly, we can fully resist sin in our bodies and minds because God has fully resisted sin in the body and mind of Christ and he now lives within you if you are in him. Yet holiness still isn't easy. Earlier in chapter 12 of Hebrews, the author, in talking about sanctification, holiness, and being disciplined in the faith, 
says this in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It is indeed painful to surrender the things of the flesh, to be rebuked by brothers and sisters in our error, and to experience the desperate mourning that follows in the wake of our failure. It's painful also to trust that not having some of the things that you feel you need most is not only going to be good for you, but will also produce in you a deeper joy, happiness, and experience of life. The chapter goes on to say that in an exhortation toward perseverance and obedience, therefore lift your drooping heads and hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This isn't saying we should try really hard to be really good so that we can really be saved. Rather, it is saying that by the power of God, gird up your loins and strive for holiness that God has already provided for you in Jesus. Do this because there's joy in it, church. Do this because others will glory in God because of it, church. And do this because this is who you are now in Christ. So what do we make of the Hebrews passage that refers to Esau's inability to recover the blessing after he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew at the end of a long day of work? Well, Esau despised his birthright. And he did so by putting the immediate hunger of his belly before the future blessings of his inheritance. He gave his desire far more credit than it deserved. And he considered what he could have in the future to be less important than a bowl of stew in the present. He even told Jacob in Genesis that he was dying of hunger. But we've all probably had a long day of work and understand that Esau was very hungry and tired, but he wasn't on the verge of death. Later in Genesis, it's told that not only did Esau sell his birthright and the future inheritance that came along with it, but he was also denied the blessing his father was to speak over him. We see in Hebrews 12 that Esau selling his birthright is directly related to his inability to recover the blessing his father gave to Jacob instead of him. As it says, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. By putting the immediate hungers of his flesh above the future promises of glory, Esau also missed out on a present life of joy and favor. It's important to note, however, that Esau didn't have the inheritance or the blessing and then lost it. He never took hold of it. He saw what he could have in the blessing and the inheritance. He knew of what those things entailed, but he never took hold of it. So when Paul warns those who live according to the flesh that they will die in Romans 8, he is referring to those with the same experience of Esau. Esau was unholy in that he desired satisfaction in the present more than glory in the future. 
Esau was not a believer or a holy child of the covenant. And at his core, he did not desire right things. And Paul is warning those not who, who are in Christ in true salvation, but those who know about Christ, know of his promises, can espouse the promises of God that are to be had in Christ. But they only know about him, and they don't know him. Because those who know him are not in the flesh, but rather in the spirit. He's warning those that if they continually walk in the desires of the flesh without remorse and a deep desire for repentance and holiness, that they probably don't know Christ. He isn't saying that believers never sin. Or that they don't at times battle sin and even lose that battle often. But if you're in Christ, your ultimate desires are not the same as the desires of your flesh. Though your body and mind mind may crave the things you know to be destructive, you are not defined as one who is unholy or a slave to those passions. You're defined rather by God's holiness, executed in the life of Christ, not your holiness executed in your life. And you have been given the Spirit of God to dwell within you and to commune with you. He is your power for present discipline and holiness, and He is your key to that joy that accompanies those things. So we must, as both individuals and as a people, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. We can't give in to the lies and the hungers that our bodies and minds tell us we desperately need. We don't need to be affirmed by others as in the way that we engage socially, intellectually, or politically. Our ethics don't have to match those in the world around us. Rather, we need to be marked by a holiness that proclaims the endless grace, love, and perfection of our God that others might come to worship Him. We don't need to participate in drunkenness or watch pornography or pursue financial wealth through greed. We need to trust that when God commands sobriety, purity, and generosity, that all of those things allow us to know Him better and make Him known better to those around us all of which will lead us to experiencing a much deeper happiness than the fleeting pleasures of parties, orgasm, and possessions. And we must not consider that it is impossible to walk in these things or that we can't go back now after years of toiling and sin. The spirit in you who believe is the very power of God that caused Christ to raise from the dead. And it can surely produce in you discipline, patience, self-control, and wisdom. In Christ, we have become slaves to righteousness, and thus we are completely free and liberated in him. Some of you may be thinking that you're like Esau, and that it's too late for you. There have definitely been times in my life when I thought I was like Esau, and that it was too late for me. You may feel as if you've made your bed in sin and death and that you must now lie in it. You may be afraid that God will reject you and his grace is not enough to cover you 
and what you've done. You may think that. There have been times when I've thought that, but based on what the scriptures say and what we've talked about this morning, God's grace is without bounds. And as long as there is breath in your lungs and Christ has yet to return to judge the quick and the dead, you still have opportunity to repent, experience the fullness of God's grace and the joy of life with him. Sure, in our failures, we have missed out on countless moments of the joy of walking in obedience. I have too. But you have not yet missed out on the future joy, both in this life and the next, that comes from knowing God. Esau missed out on the blessing and the inheritance only after the words of his father Isaac were spoken that it was so. The words of your father in heaven have not yet been spoken over you. So I entreat you to trust his son for holiness. Walk in his spirit for endurance and rejoice in his grace for you and the happiness that accompanies your identity as one who is holy and who is wholly loved. Let's pray. Lord, would you sanctify your church? By the power of your spirit, would you come and stir in us a deep call to obedience and a deep experience of the joy that accompanies that? Will we not view your law and your commandments over us as restrictions, but rather as freedom? that we no longer have to be bound by the hungers of our belly, but that we are defined by your righteousness, Jesus, and can partake in it joyfully. We worship you for this truth, Lord. Would you make us love your law more, and by the power of your spirit, would you give us the ability to resist temptation, even to the point like your son of shedding blood. You're a good, good father, and we are blessed that you would call us yours. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.